James chapter 1. Let us pray. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for the thoughts that you put in our minds that come from singing hymns and worshiping and praising you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the thoughts that you put in our minds, Lord God, when we read and study your word. Lord, what we ask today is that the thought that we would go away with and that the strength that we ask you for is to be doers of these things that we hear. Not only hearers. Hearers, yes, but active, responsive, obedient hearers, Lord God. Help us to do the work because we know therein is blessing, as this passage says. The blessing is not just in the hearing. The blessing is in the doing of what is heard. And we pray, Lord God, that you would, first of all, help us to see and to understand and to receive, to believe and to accept that, and then to respond to it in obedience to you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is James chapter 1, and I'm just going to go ahead and start... uh, I know the bulletin probably says verse 21, but let me just go ahead and start in verse 19. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, This one's religion is useless, pure, and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Now, the first thing that you should notice, I read from verse 19, which I'll explain in a moment, but really we left off at verse 21. But verse 21 starts with the word therefore. And, you know, I, I make this explanation a lot, but here it's particularly relevant because this entire passage of Scripture that I just read to you does not exist apart from the greater context of what we've already been studying. The entire beginning of the book of James is about facing trials. How do we go through the troubles, various kinds of troubles that emerge as we live our lives as Christians? 
And this passage, all the way to the end of chapter 1, and the, you know, the people who came along much later after the Bible was written and added the chapter numbers and the verse numbers in, I think actually did very well here, because I think the thought here continues all the way to the end of what we call chapter 1. All of this happens in the context of enduring trials. Verse 19, where I started, starts with the starts with the words, so then. So a conclusion was being reached and, and very easy to see in the context of enduring trials. The way to endure trials, the way to go through trouble and endure hardship is not by lashing out and ra- in wrath, which can be, as we explained, the natural inclination of people. When trouble comes, one of the natural reactions is in anger to lash out according to the flesh. That is not the way of the Christian. What the Christian is told is no. Swift to hear and slow to speak. Anger, rage, usually produces the opposite. We stop listening, we turn our brains off, we give ourselves over to our emotions, and we can't keep our mouths closed. And often the result in that situation is what? We make things worse for ourselves and for everyone else around us. Not to mention, it's an expression of a lack of faith in the Lord's ability to bring us through trials and even to, as we talked about, accomplish good things in our lives through them. Right? So, that's why he's told, Beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Why? because the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. God is wanting to produce His righteousness in you. God is wanting to raise up people who do, do. And and this passage we read today shows us that this is very much about doing, isn't it? The Christian faith isn't just about hearing and believing and having it end there. And if this chapter doesn't convince you, chapter 2, when he says faith without works is dead, that should certainly convince you, right? But what you see here is that uh, God is wanting, through difficulty and trials, as well as the other things that we know are part of the Christian faith, the study of his word, prayer, you know, fellowship, encouraging each other, loving one another, you know, much time spent with the Lord, all those things cause us to grow. But trials going through difficult times that helps and causes us to grow as we've seen. What God is wanting to produce is His righteousness in us. Now, in the moment that we first believed, we became the righteousness of God. The spiritual reality is that when someone repents and believes the gospel, there is an imputation of the righteousness of Christ, right? Jesus lived a perfect righteous life and like Isabella sang for us before, on the cross suffered and died for us. A wondrous, almost indescribable, weird, almost beauty in the blood-stained cross because when Jesus died, there was the righteous dying for the unrighteous so that when the unrighteous comes to the righteous in faith, what does God do? God justifies that one. Abraham believed God and God credited him with righteousness, right? So it's not the one who works who is justified and credited with righteousness. It's the one who believes the gospel, who is made righteous before God. 
So this is not an issue of salvation. Salvation is a work of entirely of the Lord and His grace that comes to us only through faith. We hear the word and we believe, and then we are credited with His righteousness. But now look what James is saying. James is saying that in a practical, day-by-day way in your life, God is trying to produce righteousness in us. Not a righteousness that is absolute, which could justify us, as we've explained. That comes only to us through the imputation of that when one believes the gospel. However, God wants us to grow. And he wants us to learn to do what is right, which is what righteousness is. He wants us to learn to do what is right in our lives, which is why this passage in James is so important. Because as we're trying to grow, and as we're trying to walk in the Lord, and we're trying to do what God wants us to do, what inevitably comes our way? Trouble. That's what the whole passage is about. All kinds of trouble. And so what we're being told here is that even though there's trouble going on, and some of you are going through trouble right now. In fact, in one way or another, probably every single person in the room is going in some kind of trouble. And some of you are going in some of the, through some of the hardest trouble of your lives. Some of you, maybe it's a season of relative peace, but there's still some difficult things. And life is always going to be like that. Jesus promised that. In the world, you will have trouble. And he tells us to be of good cheer because he's overcome the world. And what this passage in James is reminding us is that even as we go through trouble, God still wants us to grow and to serve Him and to learn to do what is right and to walk in righteousness. The trouble is not a sign that God has forgotten you. The trouble is a sign that God is with you because He's trying to, to use the word here, produce something in you. He's trying to produce the righteousness of God. The wrath of man does not do that. That's the point of the conclusion that's reached in verses 19 and 20. Right? When you're in the difficult times, you turn to the Lord and you ask for wisdom. You ask in faith with no doubting. And you don't lash out with irrational and emotional words of rage or other destructive kinds of speech. You remain swift to hear and slow to speak because your wrath, your anger, your frustration acted upon does not produce the righteousness of God. What does produce the righteousness of God? Patiently enduring through hardships. Letting Him bring you through and letting Him show you and teach you what you need to learn through the hardship and through the trial. That's how we grow. Going through a difficult time and learning to pray through it. Not to lash out with our mouths or in any other way. But going through a difficult time and praying through it. And trusting God. And waiting on God. Listen, this pleases God. It delights God. Because it's an expression of the fact that your faith is growing strong. We're learning to trust day by day. And the more we learn to trust, the more God is going to work His righteousness out through us. This passage goes on very much to tell us that He wants us not just to hear what He has to say, but actually put it into practice in our lives. He wants us to do it. He wants us to be doers of the work, as it says later in the passage. Right? And we need to grow. We need to grow to be able to do that. We need to grow in our faith. We need to grow in our trust in Him. So verse 19 says, So then, my beloved brethren, and it explains that our 
lashing out our wrath, our, you know, we want to bring a sledgehammer to a situation sometimes, don't we? We just want to come in and with a wrecking ball, thinking that we can fix everything. And what we're told here is that when it comes to the righteousness of God, which is what every Christian should long to be having produced in their lives, that's not the way it comes about by the wrath of man. On the other hand, verse 21 says what? Therefore, and so you see, again, you have these sentences that begin with these words. Verse 21 starts with the word therefore. Verse 22 starts with the word but. Verse 23 starts with the word for. Verse 25 starts with the word but. And you see what all these are in any language, and obviously in English. These are words that are used to connect thoughts. Whether it's, to, whether it's to link two things or to contrast two things like the word but does. But the entire thing, the entire thing that James is writing here is continuing in this idea of enduring trials and enduring through hardships. That's the whole setting. So he says what? Therefore what? No, not, not the wrath of man. Not lashing out in anger. Not just blasting out with your mouth all of your frustrations. No. Therefore, what? Lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with what? Meekness. What's another word for meekness? Humble, right? Humility. Humility. No. Not lashing out in anger, which is an expression of pride, because it's an expression that we think we can fix everything by our own devices and our own anger. But no, rather laying aside filthiness and overflow of wickedness, receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And I just want to say, looking at the context of this statement, when he talks about here the implanted word being able to save your souls, while it's obviously true that the word of God the gospel itself, when one believes it, they receive salvation. I don't think that's what James is talking about here. What James is talking about here is that rather than lashing out with our own tongues, if we're swift to hear and to receive the implanted word, that is the wisdom of God through his word implanted in our hearts, that will save our souls. That is deliver us through the difficulty and the trial that we're going through, right? So when he speaks here of saving our souls, I don't think the context is that he's speaking of our eternal salvation. That's already settled through faith in Christ. The people that he's writing to are already believers. You sitting here today, if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the book of James is not written to you to show you how you ought to get saved. You're saved. That's done if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is written to show how a believer can go through hardships and trials. And what we're told is, don't lash out because our own wrath doesn't produce the righteousness of God. Slow to speak, swift to hear, receive His wisdom. Receive. Because that's, that's what earlier in the passage said, right? If you lack wisdom, ask of God. How does God give His wisdom in response to that? Through His Word, right? Ask God, Lord, show me, lead me. Give me the knowledge and the wisdom and the instruction that I need. Hey, listen, guys, here's where it is. You know, sometimes God will use someone to speak it to you. Sometimes God will just use something that you read in the book, right? But 
This is where the revelation of all of God's wisdom for us is in the Word. And that Word, when it is implanted in us, right? In other words, it's not... And this this connects very much with what he says next about being a doer and not just a hearer. Listen, when the Word is implanted in us, in other words, when we hear God's Word and it is deeply embedded in us, that is, we don't just hear it with our ears and it adds to our understanding, we hear it and it's embraced in the heart. It is received as truth and as wisdom and as guidance and as instruction. When we receive God's Word and we believe it and we understand that He's speaking to us and showing us how we ought to live and what we ought to do, when the Word is implanted deeply in us, that is able to give us the guidance and the wisdom and the direction and the strength and the comfort necessary to what? Deliver our souls. To deliver us through the various trials that we're walking through in life. You see that? You could see why somebody would come to a verse like this and read it, pull it out of its context and say, oh, he's talking about the gospel there. But I don't think so. I think in the context, what he's doing is he's speaking to believers and he's telling them how they ought to go through trials and how they ought to go through hardships. And your soul can be delivered through that with when instead of lashing out in your own wrath, in meekness, receiving the implanted word. And that's where the deliverance, the salvation, if you will, from trials that we go through in life comes from. God wishes to deliver you through every manner of hardship and to produce patience, endurance, maturity, and righteousness in you. That doesn't come. Look at the hymn that we just sang. Only thou art holy, there is none beside. Though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see. Right? God wants to produce in us growth, glory. And so we're told here what? Lay aside filthiness, overflow of wickedness, and receive that Receive that wisdom from His Word that you prayed for and you were told to pray for and ask for, believing that He'll give it to you. But see, when we walk, when we walk with no meekness, with no, when we just walk in wrath and in anger and we walk in unholiness and every aspect of your life you look at, you just have attached so firmly to you, just living your life as you lived it before you knew the Lord. Just walking in all of the same sin and all of the same unrighteousness and all of the same corruption and uncleanness of this world. When we walk that way, and then we're going, we're praying to the Lord for wisdom and how to get through a trial. Do you see what the, the obvious difficulty with that is? That's why James says, lay it aside. Lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive So there's two things going on in this statement in verse 21, aren't there? There's this command to lay aside the things in your life that don't belong there. And then there is this command to receive the implanted word in all humility, meekness. Receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. That's the way to walk through a trial. That's how you walk through a trial. Not lashing out in anger. Not lashing out in wrath, not lashing out in frustration, 
not blowing off at the mouth. And there's other ways you can blow off too, right? There's all sorts of ways that people just like take matters into their own hands and never turn to the Lord. And look, I'm not speaking to and promoting an existence where we never try to fix anything or we never try to do anything and we're just negligent in dealing with things in our lives. I'm actually speaking of the exact opposite, but I'm speaking of how to do it. We ought to go to the Lord for guidance and wisdom when trials come, not lash out in wrath, in humility and meekness. Pray to Him, wait on Him, dispense with the overflow of wickedness and corruption in your own life, and wait on God to deliver you by His Word and by His wisdom. And this is what James is saying here, right? See, God is trying to produce a righteousness in us. God is trying to produce good works in us and through us. See, not we ourselves bringing our own works to the table and saying, see God? No. God Himself is trying to produce through us good things that glorify and honor Him. And even through difficulty and trial, God can and expects for those things to be able to happen, for us to focus on Him and to serve Him. On this subject of where He says, laying aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, I want you to just follow a couple of other passages of Scripture with me, because the Apostle Paul said a very similar thing uh, in two places. And, uh, well, let's look at one of them. Go to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 20. Turn to Ephesians Really, you back up to verse 17 to, to like get the whole thought. Ephesians 4.17 This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. The word Gentiles there being understood in its generic sense to mean the world. In other words, I don't want you to walk anymore like the rest of the world does. In the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God. Everything that we used to be before we knew Christ, right? I don't want you to walk that way anymore. Because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work... (coughs) Sorry. I haven't figured out how to sneeze without it becoming really loud in the microphone. So, I mean, I try to do it the way you're supposed to now, but that just makes it louder, so sorry about that. Um, past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, right? No, you, you have not learned. In other words, when you came to Christ, you were not taught it's okay to walk like the rest of the world does. That's what he's saying there. You've not so learned Christ. You were not preached the gospel and told, you know, just pray this prayer and continue to live the way that you lived. It doesn't matter, 
right? You're not, we're not called to walk like the rest of the world does in the futility of the mind, like before we knew Christ. That's the idea of darkened understanding and alienated from the life of God. Uh, walking in like this past feeling. The idea of past feeling is the conscience doesn't even work anymore. It's like people just do whatever they want to do and their conscience doesn't even accuse them of it anymore. The conscience is a tricky thing. The conscience can be conditioned or seared is the word the Bible uses to describe the conscience of people who don't know the Lord. The conscience can be so hardened and so seared that like people are able to like do things that are wicked and sinful with no feeling, no feeling of guilt or no feeling of wrongness in them. You know, we're not supposed to live like that. Giving themselves over to lewdness, all uncleanness with greediness. That's not what we were taught. That's not the message of the gospel. Just receive Jesus and then it's okay to continue living that way. No. What does he say? You've not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Here's what you're taught to do. Verse 22. That you put off. This is the same thing that James says when he says lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. Here's Paul's way of saying it. Put off concerning your former conduct. Just, just that phrase alone. If all he said was put off your former conduct and stopped, that'd be enough. He goes on to elaborate, which is good for us. But if he just said put off your former conduct, what does that statement itself imply? It implies that for a Christian, there's a way they used to walk and now there's a way that they do walk. There's a difference, right? And it says what? Put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you may put on the new man which is created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And the thing I want to especially draw your attention to there is that it does not say God puts off and God puts on. He says you. You put off concerning the old man, your former conduct. You put on the new man. In other words, God in His sovereignty and His power does all the work to save you and redeem you, but He has still left you here to live a life. There begins the life of the Christian pilgrim, right? Beginning to follow the Lord and walk after the Lord, right? It doesn't become a fatalistic existence where we just now, we believe and then nothing happens. He's Basically what Paul is saying here is, you're a Christian now. Don't walk the way that you used to walk. Put that old manner of life off and put on the new man. He's made you a new man in Christ. Now put it on. You are what you are. Don't. It's, it's the, the illustration of putting off and putting on is like clothing. It's like going to work all day and getting dirty in your clothing and then going home and taking off the dirty clothes and putting on clean clothes. That's kind of the illustration that he's drawing upon, right? Don't walk around in the dirty clothes. Put on some new. Put on the. Put on the clean ones, right? Put off the old man with his conduct and put on the new one. This is what James is talking about. Put off the overflow of wickedness. Get it out. You're going through trials. Don't lash out in wrath. Don't lash out in anger. Don't use your tongue to cause harm and just lash out like that. Get all of the wickedness off and just meekly, humbly, faithfully, quietly pray and receive God's wisdom, the implanted word which is able to deliver you, which is able to bring you through the trial. The Christian way, 
the Christian way of going through difficulty is different than the world's way of going through difficulty. Which way will you go? Go the way the Word of God tells us to. What you will find is, it's not easy, but the result of it is it produces the righteousness of God. And therein is joy. The wrath of man might provide some sort of release of frustration for you, but it doesn't produce the righteousness of God. Your lashing out with your tongue or whatever might produce something that makes you feel good and makes you feel justified, but it does not produce the righteousness of God. Humbly, meekly waiting on God and receiving the implanted word, that produces the righteousness of God. I think it's important that we look at Paul's parallel passage. Go to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. Right after Ephesians is Philippians, then Colossians. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. Probably not too many pages to turn. Therefore, put to death your members which are on earth. And he gets very specific in this list. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience on which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. What's he saying there? Very plainly. All these things that God is going to come and judge and destroy the entire world for, they have no place in your life. Put them up. Yes, all of your sins are forgiven. But in a practical sense, as you live and as you walk, don't deceive yourself into thinking that just because all of it... And doesn't James say that multiple times? Don't deceive yourself. Don't, don't deceive yourselves. Don't be deceived, right? Don't deceive yourself into thinking that like, okay, because I'm a Christian now, while it is absolutely true... My sins have been dealt with and I can walk securely and in confidence with full assurance of my eternal salvation. Don't, don't think to yourself that that somehow means that like now how I live doesn't matter and I've got some sort of weird kind of license to just continue to walk in all the things that give me pleasure because my sins are dealt with. No, put that stuff to death, he says, because God is coming to judge the entire world. You yourself once walked in those things. You know that God is going to come and judge the entire world because of all them. Put them to death, right? And then what's he go on to say? Verse 8. And I've always thought, I know I've shared this before, and I'm sure I will again, but this has always been very profound to me, that verse 8 says, but now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, and filthy language out of your mouth. Very similar to what James says when he says, uh, uh, talks about the tongue and not using the tongue to lash out with the, with the wrath of man. But the part of it that strikes me is if verse 8 said, but now put off all these, that would be enough, right? 
But he doesn't. If it simply said, but now you are to put off all these, that would be enough. But he doesn't say that. He says it like this. But now you yourselves are to put off. You think he's trying to make a point? I mean, he added a couple words there that he doesn't need to to make the point. Which means those extra words are the point. Right? You yourselves are to put off all these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, and filthy language out of your mouth. You yourself are to put those off. This is what James is saying as well. Cleanse yourself. Put off. Lay aside, to use James's words, all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. The Christian life, the Christian walk, is a practical pursuit of holiness. I feel like the late, recent, popular, media-driven, American, evangelical church has lost that sense. And that the Christian faith, Christian practice, and the Christian church emphasizes the salvific nature of, of, of what the gospel is, but then has somehow lost this mandate, lost touch with this mandate to call people to a pursuit of holiness. Holiness of thought. Holiness of deed. Holiness of word. Holiness in relationships. Holiness in what we embrace with our eyes and our ears and our minds and our hearts. The Christian life is a pursuit of a practiced holiness. Not to earn salvation. I keep having to make that distinction because you'd be surprised how quick when you say things like this, people will jump down your throats and say, you're promoting works to earn your salvation. Please, I know the difference. I am doing no such thing. I know that nothing that I do in my life earns anything or adds anything to my salvation or keeps me saved. I know that my salvation, in fact, had nothing to do with me even choosing Him. My salvation had to do with Him seeking and finding me and drawing me to Himself. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He sought me. He found me. He drew me to... I know all of this. But I also know that as one who has been found by Him and by His grace been blessed as one of His elect with salvation... I also know that every page, it seems, of these letters that I read in the New Testament are calling me to a practiced holiness, to pursue with my life holiness, not to earn my salvation, but that I might grow and produce with my life what pleases Him. So it's why James, Paul, Peter, the writer of Hebrews, if that's not one of those three, all of them agree, lay the old life aside 
Put off the old man. You yourselves are to put off all of these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. You yourselves put it off. Contextualize that with what James says. It doesn't produce the righteousness of God. So get rid of it. What God wants to produce is His righteousness. Go back to James. For your own edification, you can read Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 later, which talks about laying aside every weight, all the sin that easily besets us and pursuing, with, surrounded by so great a cloud, cloud of witnesses, you know, pursuing the Lord. So you can read that for your own edification later, even though I just quoted most of it for you. Uh, back in James 1, Do you have a aside now? Aside, ready? Do you have an interest in these things? Let's just take a step back. These are things that are completely spiritual. We talk about the implanted word. We're talking about what God does in us. We're talking about we're talking about doing some hard, perhaps unnatural things in response to His commands. When we talk about pursuing holiness, we're not talking about pursuing what comes naturally to people. Have you found that yet? Back up a step. Does, does this even interest you? Do you even embrace this as part of Christianity? Does anybody anymore? Sometimes I wonder about the age that we live in. Not about you personally or me personally, though I have lots of questions about myself and supposed to examine ourselves. But in the modern age, do those who profess to be Christians and belong to church... Is there any, any in your life of setting aside anything, anything worldly for the sake of pursuing that which is holy? Do you permit teachings like this to invade your life in such a way that you're even open to the idea of responding to them? I wonder that about the modern church in general sometimes. Are we interested at all in God calling us to put rottenness and wickedness and sinfulness out of our lives as we pursue Him? Not trying to justify ourselves, or there I am making the disclaimer again for the umpteenth time. But do we have any interest in this? What place does spiritual matters have in your life? You know, Christians are not just people who live like everyone else, but are maybe a little nicer. 
maybe they don't drink, maybe they don't smoke, maybe they don't swear, or they don't as much as everybody else. There's, a, there's an external scrub, a morality on the outside. But otherwise, all of our pursuits, all of our loves, everything we do, no different. Really? You paid attention to the words in that last hymn we sung, right? Though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, only thou art holy. That's the God that we worship and we pursue, right? Check your heart and your head. Are you, interest, are, are you interested in these things? Do you want this? Do you want this life that God calls us to? I know that he's sovereign, and I'm not questioning that, but I'm asking you, do you want it? Is there something in you? Is his spirit at work in you? Is there something in your mind that says, yes, Lord, please, Lord, I'm sorry where I've permitted filthiness and overflow of wickedness and I go through trials when difficult times comes. Of course, all I do is I lash out in anger and I I run my mouth and I gossip and I slander and I'm angry and I scream and and I fight and I do worse. and, And Lord, I don't wait on you at all. Lord, I know I'm wrong. Lord, please forgive me. Lord, change me. Lord, change me. Lord, change me. Make me meek. Help me in meekness and quietness. Be swift to hear and to receive what it is that you want. The implanted word, receive your wisdom. Change me. Change me to someone who goes through trials producing your righteousness. Do you have an interest in that? What does it mean if you don't? It's a call for a little self-examination. Do we really think we're just going to skate through life like faking God out? And live like our own custom-designed version of Christianity where we do the things that we want and never respond to the things that He calls us to? This is what God wants. This. This. You're going to go through trials. If you lack wisdom... Come and ask from me, but don't ask without faith. Don't lash out in anger. Don't lash out with your tongue. Be slow to hear, slow to speak, swift to hear. In all humility and meekness, receive my word, which is able to deliver you and save you through it all. I want to produce my righteousness in you. Your wrath doesn't do that. My power and my word and my wisdom, saith the Lord, does that. Do you want that? Do you want that? That's the life of God in Christ. There's nothing casual about it. There's nothing passive about it. That's why Jesus described it as what? A narrow and difficult way which leads to life that very few find. That's why Jesus said that we should agonize to enter at the narrow gate.
Well, now we're at verse 22, which typical Lou sermon. Talked for 40 minutes, and we've gone through one verse. That's not a skill, and that's not because I'm smart, and that's not because there's anything good about me. It's, frankly, it is a deficiency on my part. It is. It really is. I know it is. But I get stirred up by these things, and I just feel like I have to say things. Now, verse 22, I've got about five minutes to go because I want to end this early because we have a baptism. But, but verse 22 starts with the word but. Right? So, but is a word that connects thoughts, but contrast in a contrasting way. So, verse 21 said, Lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But, what? Be doers of it. Why the word but? Because in verse 21, he said to receive the word. But, don't just receive the word. Don't just get your wisdom. Don't just get your answer. Don't just get your direction. Don't just get your instruction and say amen and go home. Here we go. All in the context, by the way, of enduring trials. You come to me, says God, you come to me and you ask me for wisdom. You ask in faith, no doubting. But you come to me when you're in various trials and you ask me, I'll give liberally and without reproach, I'll give it to you. That's what he says. Don't lash out with the wrath of man. Just humbly wait on me. But when I give it to you, you do what it says. You do what it says or it does you no good. It doesn't do you any good for God to give you all of the wisdom of Solomon and for you to just lock it up in your mind and sit there. You know what you're doing when you receive all the wisdom of God and go, ah, and then continue to lash out with the wrath of man in the midst of your trials anyway? You know what you're doing? What does it say in this verse you're doing? You're deceiving yourself. You're tricking yourself. In what way are you deceiving yourself? You're deceiving yourself into thinking that you're doing what God wants you to do simply because you're listening to Him. And He does want... That's, that's the deception of it is that He does want you to listen to Him. But He doesn't want you to... Just, and listen, every one of you that's a parent, you know this. You love it when your kids come to you and you get a chance to impart some wisdom. But you get frustrated when they just run away and they don't do what you pass along to them. Not just with your children, with anybody. Right? And this is, this is the Lord zillions of times over. With people coming to Him for wisdom. And the Lord abundantly, abundantly leading and guiding and teaching. Patiently walking with us. Guiding us, consoling us, comforting us, edifying us, giving us people in our lives who are spiritual to speak and to minister and to help. And then having people receive that and say, ah, yes, amen. And then never putting a word of what they're taught into practice in their lives. 
Self-deception, James calls that. Thus, he says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. You know what you're like? Simple little illustration. If anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself and he goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Right? In other words, what's he saying? Ready? If you are taught and receive God's word, God's instruction for your life, and you don't put it into practice, it's not going to stay there. You hear what I said? There there are abundant, infinite, natural illustrations of this that can be given. Right? You can go, I'm a musician. You can go to a conservatory and spend eight years training and practicing and playing and performing. And if you graduate and you stop playing and you don't continue to work and continue to practice, if you don't put into practice the things that you learn, your skill will deteriorate. This is true of anything else that you do, right? That's just a natural illustration. How much more real in the spiritual realm? Be a doer of word and not a hearer only, deceiving yourself. Because if you receive God's wisdom and you don't put it into practice, you can for a moment say, praise the Lord, yes, this is awesome. But if you don't put it into practice in your life, you're going to forget it. You're going to be like a person who goes and looks in the mirror, likes, likes, like, ah, yeah, looks in the mirror, feels good. I never have that. That never happens to me. I never, I never look in the mirror and go like this. I usually look in the mirror and go, oh, really? Right? So, but, but still, I understand what he means. So, so, so you look in the mirror and like, yeah, all right, good. And you go out and completely forget. Of course you do, right? Unless you're a real, complete, helpless narcissist, you don't walk through your days thinking about how great you look. I hope not. <laughs> There's maybe one or two of you could do that, but really not the... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> a little brutal honesty there. But listen. Look. The Word of God, the wisdom of God, the instruction of God, the wisdom that He gives for trials are to be obeyed. How many of you are here for Thursday night? For what Haggai had to say. Remember what, remember what Haggai said? Haggai said, uh, you know, if a man carries uh, a piece of holy meat in the hem of his garment, but then it brushes into something that's unholy, is the meat still holy? No. If someone is uh, defiled by uh, touching, running into a dead body, is that person holy? No. And then God says through the prophet, thus are my people, thus are this people, They're not holy. They're unclean to me. Why? Because he said, build the temple. And they stopped. Their disobedience made them unclean to God. But God sent them Haggai and Zechariah. And they prophesied. And when they prophesied, they started building again. So God said, from this day forth, I will bless you. Because they were obedient. The blessing of God was withheld because of their disobedience. The blessing of God was added back in when they responded to the prophet and obeyed. And you see this pattern in 
Genesis with Cain and Abel. You see this pattern in Noah's life when he's told to build the ark. You see this pattern in Abraham's life when he's told to get up out of his country and go to a place that God was going to show him. You see this pattern uh, when the law is given through Moses, both in Exodus and the Numbers and in the sec- in Leviticus and in the second time through Deuteronomy. You see this pattern in David. You see it in Solomon. You see it in all of the kings. You see it brought out through all of the prophets. You see it written by the apostles. God blesses obedience, and that's where James goes. Verse 25, I'm going to end here. I have, this is going to be a two-part message, sorry. But, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and I have more to say about this, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, right? This one will be blessed in what he does. Ready? Okay, everyone think now, ready? Uh, this is in my spin. Who is blessed? Don't, don't give me the answer that you think I want. Look at your Bible. Who is blessed? The one who does the work. The one who hears the word and puts it into practice. Not the one who hears the word and doesn't do it. The person who hears it and does it. And by the way, do you notice this little... We have time. You notice this little thing here. Verse 22 says, be doers of the... Verse 25 says, if a person is a doer of the... Notice that one says word and the other says work. You notice that? Right? Because the word calls us to work. That's why they're interchangeable there. You understand? Be a doer of the word. Right? The doer of the work is the person who hears the word and obeys it. That's the person who isn't like the one who just looks in the mirror and walks away. That's the person who hears the word and says, yes, Lord, and does what it says. And that's how you go through a trial. That's how you go through difficulty in life. That's how God produces his righteousness in you. Not through your wrath, not through your lashing out with your tongue, but through your meekly, humbly receiving his implanted word and saying, yes, Lord, and being a doer of it. That's how God delivers your soul through a trial. There's more to say about that. And we'll pick it up next week. Can we all stand up together for a moment? I'd like to say a prayer. Sydney, you can come on up here and head back in there and get yourself ready for your baptism. I'm going to disappear here in a moment and do the same. Jed and Amy, you guys can come on up here. And uh, I'm going to say a short prayer. And after I pray, uh, Jed and Amy will lead in a hymn. Feel free to repeat a verse or two if necessary, if I don't appear. But um, And some of the guys can come up here and kind of move some of this stuff out of the way. That'll be great. And we'll have Sydney's baptism. All right? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you, Lord God, for your word. Help us, just like we saw today, going through the trials and hardships of life, to meekly and humbly wait on you, receive your word, and be doers of it for your glory. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.